Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Julia Joja and I'm joined by Giselle Donnelly. I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and Dalibur Rohaj, also a senior fellow at the AI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. And today, it's just us um, looking back just the last few days at um, the EU summit what that meant for Ukraine and Moldova and Georgia, um, or didn't mean, and uh, in the G7 summit that has just wrapped up and um, given us a little bit to laugh about. Um, and, and particularly, we're going to focus on um, the big upcoming NATO summit, dubbed as uh, a summit like no other before, um, with a lot of promises and whether that's going to meet demands on the ground when it comes to the Eastern Front. So shall we start with um, the EU and uh, the special candidate status that was given to Ukraine? Sounds like a good starting point. <laughs> Although starting with happy news on the Eastern Front could be a reverse of precedent, if nothing no, else. Just give me a chance. The next sentence would, would have been a negative one. <laughs> it was almost... We are bound to end up on, yeah. a, on a depressing note if we <laughs> start with happy news. <laughs> would be very unlike us. Um, I, I guess the question has been whether that means anything besides a symbolic nature of the summit. And um, the big, I haven't seen anyone talking about how long would it actually at this moment take Ukraine or Moldova to join. The one exception I have seen was the Romanian ambassador to Moldova, Romania's Moldova's biggest backer in this, um, who said uh, six years. And I thought that was optimistic, um, but also meaning very little when it comes to Ukraine beyond just giving Ukrainians that, you know, in the end, 2014 was about NATO, uh, was about the EU, sorry, um, just giving them a little bit more motivation to fight and feel like the West is not completely saying no to them. Is there more to it that you guys see? I mean, I saw so many of my Ukrainian friends ju just being really joyful about the news. Like, this is something that they wanted and were fighting for for a for a very long time. And it is telling that even in those like first week after first weeks after the Russian invasion, like it didn't look particularly plausible that that the EU would get there. So so I can imagine that it does feel like quite a bit of an accomplishment. At the same time, it is a largely symbolic step. Uh look like there are Bunch of other countries that have candidate status, if I'm not mistaken, Albania, North Macedonia, Montenegro, Serbia, and Turkey. In Turkey's case, it's been a candidate country since 1999. It has been conducting accession talks since 2005. It has no viable prospect of membership in the EU anytime soon. And it doesn't have a conflict on its ground, right? It doesn't have conflict on its ground. So 
Like it, it feels like this like massive victory over over the skeptics of of, of EU enlargements, most prominently President Macron of France, who sort of in the past two three years sort of derailed the prospects of Western Balkans countries. But it, practically, you know, it means that there will be sort of next steps taken by the Commission that could lead to actual accession talks. But there are just like so many sort of forks on that road that could lead to you know sort of similar situation that we have with Turkey for decades to come. So you know if I were a Ukrainian I wouldn't be too jubilant. I mean I would like to see just far more imagination on the part of the EU how to on how to sort of extend the benefits of EU membership and sort of help help Ukraine in, in more more practical ways. Also if you look at the conclusions from the summit, like there is this sort of evasive language a little bit on 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 Ukraine and Georgia uh, on, on Moldova and I mean Georgia is being mentioned but it, it hasn't been granted candidate status so they say well you know the progress will depend on on the ability of countries to fulfill the Copenhagen criteria for membership adding into consideration the EU's capacity to absorb new members right there so it's sort of like a weasley formulation right. that like <laughs> if we sort of change our mind that we are no longer capable to absorb new members, then maybe new members won't be absorbed. So, 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 so I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't, you know, be popping the the champagne quite yet. Oh God, it falls to me to be the EU optimist <laughs> here. What is the world coming to? <laughs> Look, I, I think the symbolism in itself is substantive. First of all, as, as you mentioned, it does sort of. So complete the circle or at least connect the current conflict to what initiated, uh, you know, Russian pressure and ultimately the first invasion of Ukraine to the current moment, which I think is is not unimportant. Secondly, you know, in post-Cold War Europe, the EU is sort of like the gentleman's club, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So it is at least recognizing the possibility of civility and gentlemanliness on the part of the Ukrainians, which, you know, compared to how crappily uh, Western Europeans treat most Eastern Europeans is at least a step, you know, not backward and forward. And then finally, I do think it's a recognition, and I think the contrast with Turkey is quite remarkable here, of how convincing Ukraine's presentation of itself or reimagining of itself as a really culturally Western country. Dalbor, I think of your some summary of sort of cafe life in, in Kiev from, from last week. So that's got some resonance, right? Which A is is not just important in the Europeans' perception of uh, Ukraine, but in Ukrainians' self-perception, and will certainly make it easier for the West to maintain security ties uh, to Kiev that uh, you know could that we shouldn't take for granted. 
I think that point with the effect in terms of empowerment, I think that's that's a valid perspective. It drives us away from the EU, but in looking into Ukraine, but why not? Because it makes sense. I found yesterday I was reading this thread about a conversation, um, this Twitter thread about a conversation, public conversation that Arestovich and a bunch of other advisors to Zelensky had as a wrap up to what this um, candidate status means. And they were thinking ahead. And I found it interesting the way they're thinking about this. Maybe this can be an interesting segue to what they could have expected from G7 and what happened. But because they were saying, okay, so we have this now and we have several scenarios. Worst case scenario is Turkey. We don't want to end up there. But we have this dilemma of on one side, we need a national project, they call it kind of something, you know, apropos empowerment and building national identity and, and how to self-identify that is working independent of the EU, but yet this national project should be one that, um, or the difficulty will be, will be to have one that is accepted by the EU. And they were making the point of Poland that can do that because it can afford within the EU, but Ukraine is not Poland, they were saying. And so the what they were flaunting as a best case scenario, if they're not getting into the EU anytime soon, I don't know how they were defining anytime soon as South Korea um, that managed to build um, anti-corruption, democracy, freedom, security guarantees, if we can call it that, um, independent of an organization or institution such as the EU. And I found that really interesting because to me, it reflects exactly what I want them um, to be thinking about. Okay, so how do we work towards the EU? But at the same time, how do we take advantage of this incredible momentum of, you know, building national identity and in the end strategic culture. And um, that's maybe away from the EU, a couple of steps um, removed from that. But I think it's useful as food for thought in terms of how we can help. It's such an important point, because there is obviously this danger uh, of just creating expectations by, by, by Brussels that won't be met by the EU because of resistance in national capitals and and you know like president people like President Macron have been skeptical of enlargements because in their mind it just distracts away from what is the sort of more important task ahead, namely to make the EU function better in their view, sort of to deepen it and federalize it and and, and you know do things that just can't be done if you have a larger number of members that are ever more diverse. And, and, and so, so, the, so that would be the risk. But it's also the case that like, unlike the earlier batches of countries that entered the EU, Ukraine is in a very specific situation in which it is facing an existential threat from its immediate neighbor. And, and in a way, whereas you know, say, Yulia, your country, Romania, or, or my home country of Slovakia, really sort of looked to the EU as as the sort of like basic geopolitical anchor and motivating force for domestic reforms. Like for Ukrainians, it's the fact that if they if they don't get their act together, they'll be swallowed up by by Russia. I think that's that's you know that's enough of a motivating force. I don't think they need. Like you know, like we had these like reports written up by the commission, and yeah. there was 
you know, somebody who was coming to sort of scrutinize how far along <laughs> we were in adopting the Arche Communautaire. And actually, I'm not quite sure that they sort of just, just sort of like transposing the EU legislation and, and sort of like EU sort of standards, like it was all that important in, in, in just like, you know, strengthening rule of law and, and eradicating corruption and, and, and just sort of improving governance. Like it, play, it played some role, but I, I'm not sure it was the most important most important thing. So, 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 so maybe the needs are different, uh, and rather than the sort of European conditionalities in the accession process, Ukrainians just need, like you know, like access to the EU market and and just like many of the benefits of the membership just as soon as possible. Like that's where I would like to see sort of more action. But 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 in terms of those conditionalities, like they 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 realize you know very well what they need to do in order to be a sort of prosperous European country, and uh, I'm, I think. Yeah, they're perfectly capable of doing it themselves. Well, the, the other the other sort of question I would ask is whether uh, obviously there's there's going to be a massive task of reconstruction in Ukraine, economic and otherwise, that would continue after the end of the war, or cessation of hostilities, or whatever. And to the degree that this makes it easier for Europe to participate in that provides kind of a framework. I mean, I don't really have a clue how this would work out, uh, you know, in the particulars of it. But at least the question of, is Ukraine (laughs) worthy of European status is kind of off the table, or at least partially off the table, or temporarily off the table, in a way that it's a deck-clearing thing, I guess, if nothing else. Yeah, I asked the Ukrainians after the status um, was received, so what do you want now? And they said, we want to urgently connect um, Ukraine to the European electricity grid to 100%. So, yeah, it's about applicability. The, I think the Moldovans were saying we want roaming <laughs> taxes removed as soon as possible. Um, it's like a it's like a shopping list, really, at this point. Um, but, you know, if, if this can help where the U.S. cannot step in, then why not? And talking about energy... Dalibor, I feel like they listened to you um, with the oil price cap. Um, yeah. Wasn't that something that we were talking about um, recently? Yes, now you can explain it to me, Dalibor. <laughs> yeah, explain it and tell us if it's good or it's actually kind of in between because there's still China and India and all of that. So, so I think, like you know, like whether this works in practice is still very much an empirical question. the The basic idea, I mean, is is the same that. That that Sergey Guriev made in that in that op-ed piece we mentioned the other day, namely that we don't want countries, you know, we don't want Russia to be cashing in sort of the high oil prices. And you can do something to curb high oil prices, you know, you can impose a tariff on Russian oil, or you can just do a price cap and then like sanction heavily entities that sort of pay more. Uh, that way. Like, you know, like sort of like the global price of oil will still be high, but there'll be mechanisms for sort of preventing, you know, Russians from actually benefiting from that high global oil price. And uh, so, 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 I think it's something that Mario Draghi proposed at the at the council. There is a feasibility study to be done by the European Commission uh, on how to actually do the sanctioning bit because that's that's critical. So, so the idea was really to like prevent. Companies providing sort of shipping and insurance to like Russian oil going to third countries to be sort of hit if 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 
the prices go above the the cap but it is perfectly imaginable in principle that russians will say you know we'll ship the oil to you ourselves using our own shipping companies i don't know what the capacity is or that we'll provide the insurance ourselves there could be some russian government guarantees to to those to those shipping contracts in which case it is questionable whether the eu sanctions will be enough of a deterrent for potential customers uh of russia uh not to not to overpay obviously indians and the chinese and whoever would like to pay less than the full market price on the other hand if they think that they want to have a relationship with russia going forward and that this would be a way of sweetening the deal and that 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 they're cultivating that relationship those sanctions might not be strong enough and obviously the more countries you have participating in a scheme like this including the US and and you know the wider range of G7 and beyond the more effective they'll be i think the idea is sound it's 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 it's, it's just the sort of whether we are able to to sort of pull off the 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 practical aspect for it to to actually have a bite is 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 i think what's what's uncertain at this point Right. And then the other striking thing, and here I'm curious, Giselle, of your read about this is Zelensky went on video virtually to the G7 summit and asked and said, kind of demanded, said his plan is for the war to stop by the end of the calendar year. Now, that to me sounded surprising. It's the first time that he puts a deadline in and from, I think this is like uh, now a basic universal understanding, everything depends on what the US and other allies are shipping and the ship shipments are to the extent that now there's a ratio of 1 to 10 in the Donbass, so things are not looking well. So mm. Giselle, can you help us make sense of what he means? <laughs> Look, I mean, shoot, if I were Ukrainian, I would scream and scream again, okay? There is no disincentive for trying to light a fire under the, you know, <laughs> the wet grass that passes for the Western Alliance these days. <laughs> and apropos of, look, the United States is is going to account for 99% of the material or important aid that you I mean other we can't do it without the countries that border Ukraine uh you know th there's a broader picture to be sure but if you're just talking about the really hard measure of weapon support and training and other forms of intelligence support to the Ukrainian military that's uh, and of course um, the other advanced uh, intelligence gathering countries in the West really contribute to that as well. And we're now at a point, actually, I just submitted a piece today where I'm beginning to wonder whether the hesitancy about further arm shipments is a matter not so much of Western caution or Western willpower, but now we're getting close to the capacity Question. I was sort of reviewing the, um, and we can come back to this later, arithmetic on the uh, HIMARS system, which made its debut uh, in the Donbass to great effect this, this past week. 
integrate Hoopla. Um, <laughs> but the Ukrainians have asked for, and, and just doing their own battlefield analysis, um, which seems reasonable to me, considering they face a continued prospect of invasion toward Kharkiv and Kiev and are trying to win back Kherson and other parts of the south, even to get back to February sort of borders or lines. It's not like there's all that many high Mars systems around. Uh, the United States owns about 500. About two-thirds of them are army systems, and a third are Marine Corps. The Marine Corps has divested itself of many systems, including the howitzers that have been sent to Ukraine, the 155-millimeter howitzers that have helped to begin to tip that artillery balance that you were talking about. And the Marines want to ship those extras of those high Mars to the Pacific theater. So you're getting in this sort of, you know, which Sophie's choice kind of grand strategy uh, situation vis-a-vis -vis the Atlantic and the Pacific. So, you know, and this is, I think, might be a point of transition to talking about the, the NATO summit. It, it's really down to the question of, what the United States is is willing to put on the table, both in this material way, but in a leadership kind of way as well. Mm -hmm. so, so maybe we, before we talk about NATO in the in the earnest, uh, I mean, I wonder how valuable it is to parse through the language that is coming out of these different summits. But there were there were a few moments in the G seven statement on Ukraine that sounded encouraging to me, mm -hmm. including on. Uh, military aid. So, so they say it is up to Ukraine to decide on a future peace settlement free from external pressure or influence. We will continue to coordinate efforts to meet Ukraine's urgent requirements for military and defense equipment. We will continue to coordinate to provide Ukraine with material, training, logistic, intelligence, economic support to build up its armed forces. Next paragraph says that we are ready to reach arrangements with interested, pa interested parties and Ukraine on sustained security commitments to help Ukraine defend itself, secure its free and democratic future, and deter future Russian aggression, which sounds awfully like some of the stuff we've been sort of talking about here on this podcast. So if there is a peace agreement, how do we make it credible, and how do we sort of signal to the Russians that they can never, ever uh, try this try this again? So so like, like to me, this is a pretty good language, like as far as my sort of amateur assessments go. I would agree. And I, if, I, if I could just interject before I uh, explode, um, <laughs> there, this is the first time I can re remember in a long time that there was really kind of a strategic cast to a G7 meeting. The other you know, big headline out of it was the infrastructure project, which you, know, you can critique on the particulars, but is sort of a um, Western version or industrial world version or non-China version of the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. So it's kind of a recognition that the competition is broader than just security. And it involves trying to, you know, better improve, harden, whatever you like, the uh, infrastructure um, amongst you know, not just allied states, but sort of potential partner states or states that we're trying to influence or at least 
deny Chinese or Russian malign influence in. So, you know, I'm not a student of the history of the G7 or the G8 or <laughs> G anything. Gs are always like Gulf streams to me. So, but still, I mean, I mean, what do you think about that idea that there was kind of a a series, you know, despite the hijinks of the boys club, a certain strategic seriousness that I, I hadn't really picked up on for some time. Yeah, I thought too. I, I agree with you, Giselle. It was um, in Dalibor, it was surprisingly strategic for for any G summit. Um, usually it's just, uh, you know, news head um, lines for, for that day and the next, and then there's not much to it. And I'm glad if this is indeed, I remain a skeptic until I see concrete proof, but if this is indeed um, the meeting that puts a, really a boost, a start already existed, but a boost to if you want to call it Western or international democratic um, fight against for resources in the end, because that's what the critical infrastructure piece is about, um, and against um, China, Russia, and other malign influences that we've seen growing and monopolizing over the last few years. Then, then we should really welcome that. I, I want to see what more is brought to the table in the next few months and how that is taking then shape in terms of pushing, for instance, China out of rare earth um, uh, access in, in places like Africa. But nevertheless, it's good. The only problematic takeaway I have with it is that it's looking too far ahead and and that's good. But for now, we have a major food crisis, a major energy crisis, and the G7 kind of talked itself around that a bit. And I'm afraid we kind of have to head to the summit now, to the NATO summit. Um, time is running out, but I'm afraid this is going to happen also with the NATO summit. Uh, Stoltenberg just went out and said, we're going to boost to 300,000 troops from 40,000. However, when you read between the lines, not all of them will be deployed on the eastern flank, but a part will be on whatever high readiness called in, in Germany and other places. The issue of the Baltic countries that Prime Minister Kaya Kalas put forth um, in preparation of the summit that in the end, with the current contingency plans, 180 days means that these countries would be in an event of, of war completely destroyed, not right. just occupied. The ex-Lithuania. <laughs> yeah. And... and <laughs> Well, they said in the language that it's land, air, maritime, security, cybersecurity, and whatever else. But I think it's going to be mainly just land, mostly. Um, and so we remain with these huge gaps in, in maritime back to the blockade in the Black Sea, but also in the Baltic Sea. And when it comes to Ukraine and here, Georgia... Mm, probably a little bit of what we're going to call very fancily enhanced partnership. I think the language is going to be even better than that, but it will mean 
more language on sustained security, sustained partnership for whenever the situation stabilizes. But until then, they're running out of stuff. We are running out of stuff, as Giselle was was uh, um, suggesting earlier. And this is all looking into the next 10 years as the strategic concept announces. Um, so I'm afraid it's going to look all very pompous, but going into detail, um, huge gaps in NATO's defense continue to remain. And when it comes to outside um, its borders, then the situation is just continues to be catastrophical. You have these discussions always taking place at a sort of level of abstraction, which is not terribly helpful. And that includes the infrastructure debate. So, so, so this G7 sort of moves are not the first ones. Last year, there was a discussion about, what was it called? Build Back a Better World, modeled after the domestic, <laughs> ill-fated domestic legislation. Um, yeah. And the EU has had the for a long time Graf this, Zeppelin. <laughs> these plans for something called Global Gateway, which is meant to be like Belt and Road, but actually sustainable and green and respectful of human rights and not, not you know, getting full uh, countries into that trap. Diversity, inclusiveness, and well, I forget what the E is right so now. Like, like, like Belt and Road, but, but like nice and, and, and unhumane. <laughs> and and, 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 and what, what is lacking in that is is a sort of, okay, so, so like, like so some sort of sense of like geography, for example. So it's like, what are our priorities? Like, are we going to just go around the world extending infrastructure loans to anybody? Or are, are we focusing on, on one part of the world? I think that the situation in Ukraine, like it would be helpful if some of these efforts you know, we talked about the electricity grid and 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 and, and, and mobile networks. Like, if, if some of this money actually went towards the reconstruction of Ukraine in a way that would, like, sort of help really take it into the fold of the West, I think that should be a priority. Likewise, like with with you know, like strategic concepts and and people who sort of obsess about language in these long term strategic documents, like like maybe that should be put on the back burner on in favor of of some sort of concrete decisions about what we're going to do about the black sea otherwise you know there'll be like either five million people showing up on europe's shores next year and that can upend everything yeah i think that's going to be missing isn't it just sort of like moving away from the abstract towards the granular i think is, is what i would like to see I'm gonna I'm gonna try once more again. To be <laughs> we admire your endurance. <laughs> First of all, putting a bullet through the brain of the existing strategic concept was is in itself a step forward. You know yeah. that was a 2010 <laughs> document looking Russia forward was a to partner. a strategic partnership with Moscow, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, you know it, it may not be sign of sentient life, but at least there's some <laughs> lower, lower neural functions in Brussels that we can get an impulse from. But but look, you, you're right. I mean, and I look, I don't know what they're going to actually say at Madrid or something like that, but the proof of the pudding will be in whether there's a built-out defense of the Eastern Front. I mean, you know, the, speaking of uh, promises we all hope 
to live to see fulfilled. The Poles said they were going to expand their army to 400,000 people. They have F-16s. They're, they're going to buy American tanks and so on and so forth. So the, And they've been a rock of the, the alliance so far and have and are, are getting the credit that, that they deserve for that. But, you know, that's got to that's got to be the beginning and not the conclusion. You know, the, the the question for me or the sort of metric will be what happens in Southeast Europe, right? So mines and now increasingly military hearts are aligned in Northeast Europe. You know, let's hold, we'll leave for Dalibor the soft underbelly of Central <laughs> Europe. <laughs> but but the question is, you know, are we... Is is can Romania be turned into a kind of Poland of the South, or Ukraine, for that matter? I mean, yeah, these and these again. I hate to be so American centric, but this is a critical phase for American leadership to to build upon this moment, not just simply to you know s- smash the the Russians in Ukraine, but to to create a NATO. Or, or turn these, you know, Yulia, Romania is a great sort of canary in a, in a coal mine here. Can we transform the hopes that Ukrainians have into expectations for all of Europe and for the United States and Europe? Yeah, um, I think it's great that you put that on the table. And I was reminded just before a podcast by um, a friend who I'm hoping will welcome soon on the on the podcast as a guest as well from Georgia about Romania's role. And it's true that in this conflict, I've said it multiple times, I've been disappointed, they could have done better. I heard in Ukraine that they're actually doing not as bad as I thought. But Certainly, Romania is the key country, the only country on the Black Sea that can have this role of basically U.S. power projection and then building in Romanian governance and infrastructure to fix things um, that are really essential to us in Europe, too, like the trans. Um, Caucasus connectivity in terms of pipelines and um, export from the stands into Europe as alternatives to Russia and giving a hand in terms of buildup and resilience to Bulgaria and Georgia and of course Ukraine primarily. And Romania is the only country that can act politically as the mediator um, between the United States and Turkey to get Turkey on board with a lot more um, that we kind of need in the Black Sea. I think it's entirely possible. I think luckily it does not and continues not to depend on one political party in Romania being in power rather than the other. There remains a transpartisan consensus that the U.S. is the only choice and the you know visits and and kisses in Paris and Berlin remain just flirtations, <laughs> so I, I'm not worried about that. But but then there are shortcomings right now, so it does go back to the United States prioritizing Romania and the Black Sea region because Romania does not have as much in this initiative as it could, um, but it will do whatever Washington is asking for, whatever is beneficial to national and regional security. 
But that also means that on the demand and supply side in in Washington, um, there needs to be, given the uncomfortable situation right now, more um, decisiveness and resolution when it comes to figuring out how Romania can be helpful to the United States and can be used as U.S. power projection in the region. Everybody would welcome it. People would you know, wave the NATO and U.S. flags and, and all of that. It's just a matter of political will going back to the EU conversation at the beginning on both sides. Um, but I am convinced that it's possible. And, uh, and if we were to get to that point in a few months, a year or two, um, with a strategic plan kind of on the strategic partnership relationship, the bilateral one, that th- then this could be a game changer for even the blockade in the region, um, the Russian blockade for um, how Russia on the other side can be blocked in terms of energy, how deterrence can be built up to a point where it's really deterrence by denial and they don't even think about going. It's just that at this summit, I didn't expect anything else, so I'm not like personally disappointed, but at this summit, Romania, at least publicly, has ceased to talk about the need for a NATO fleet in the Black Sea, um, has ceased to demand um, things publicly from NATO. I do hope they do it behind closed doors, but I'm not sure we're going to get anywhere on NATO presence there. Well, we will have an episode in the Georgia strategic plan for Southeast Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So I, I know we have to wrap up, but just one one more thing on this, if I if I, if, if if I may, N- namely, that like you know, given the um, ongoing debate within the U.S. about America's global role and the value of its alliances, I. Th- think getting this right and getting more countries in the alliance who would behave like Poland uh, as opposed to say Germany would be something that people like us could point to while making the case for why these alliances and these partnerships and and, and the security guarantees are still in America's sort of broader interest and why they still matter. And, and, and I mean, I hope that there is this understanding in Eastern Europe too, because I mean, we really sort of do, do need each other. And does it make the, the sort of case of the American internationalists so much more easier if, 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 if our European friends stepped up at this, at this juncture? If they would just follow your advice to look at a map occasionally, the, the quality of strategic dialogue would, Step up exponentially. (laughs) I think we're going to leave it at that. So we we are pro maps. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's our conclusion. And as we're wrapping up, we'll turn on the TVs to watch what is coming out of the NATO summit. On the last note, we did skip that, but it was nice to see um, at the G7 summit, Putin being mocked and and humiliated, as Macron said, though he did not participate. I hope we're going to have some highlights um, from the NATO summit as well. We're keeping our fingers crossed. We should all vote for Boris Johnson just for his towel-snapping level of humor and full marks to Ursula von der Leyen for, yeah. for sitting through the, the, 
Yeah, Come I mean, you know, who cares about the occasional lying to the House of Commons? <laughs> oh, okay, so yeah, I can understand why, why the the British are upset, but they need to swallow their principles for the greater good. <laughs> <laughs> and us too, it seems. All right, so from me, Yulia Zoja, and my friends, Giselle Donnelly and Dalbur Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have emerged along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod in one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.